Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a neurologist goes over the diagnosis and treatment of headaches. About 80% of patients have migraine history in the family, but some of them may be missed because in the old time it was not diagnosed. A dermatologist discusses sun exposure and skin protection. People who get the quote baseline protective tan, psychologically they feel so secure about it that they go out longer in the sun and they wind up getting a whopping dose of sun exposure during the vacation. And that kind of pattern actually leads to more sun damage. And a psychologist explains how to recognize, avoid, and treat burnout. Burnout isn't a diagnosis per se, it's not a disorder, but it's a description, a state almost anybody could find themselves in. All that, plus a selection from The Healing Muse, right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air. Your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll explore summertime skin concerns with a dermatologist. Then, we'll hear from a psychologist about what to do about burnout. But first, a neurologist will help us understand the diagnosis and treatment of headaches. There are many types of headaches and many causes, and here in the HealthLink on Air studio to talk about headache diagnosis and treatment is upstate neurologist Dr. Rosama Joseph. Thank you, Dr. Joseph, for being here. You're welcome. What are the types of headaches most common in central New York that you see? There are several types of headaches. First, I want to say that we try to classify it as primary headaches, meaning there is no identifiable cause. And then there are the secondary headaches, which are rare, which is due to another disorder like brain tumor or infection. Do you want me to continue with the primary headaches? The most common primary headaches in the population is what we call as tension headaches. Tension headaches. That's the one that everyone gets every once in a while. Almost everybody gets, usually at the end of a very stressful day. But it's a mild, dull, aching pain without any associated other disabling symptoms. So persons usually do not seek medical help for that. They take a Tylenol or aspirin or... Right. And then the most common disabling headaches are migraines, which is the one we see in our clinic. There is about 15% of the population worldwide who suffer from migraines. 15%? That's about a lot. 15, some of them may be even undiagnosed. So is there a medical definition of what makes a headache a migraine headache? Yes. What, what is? Migraines are attacks which come and go uh, with headaches associated with other disabling symptoms like nausea, vomiting, extreme noise and light and smell sensitivity, inability to move around. So they are functionally disabled by this. So how do you go about uh, diagnosing that it is a migraine? The most important diagnostic tool, I will say, is the history taken by the doctor with the patient giving the details, which should include several things like the onset, the duration, the frequency, the severity, what are the triggers, 
associated symptoms any unusual associated new symptoms medications already tried and failed test done family history all these are very important for us to make the diagnosis so then, by the time someone sees uh-huh. a specialist like you uh, it, they they haven't just had a single episode of migraine. They've probably dealt with this for a long time. Correct. Okay. You mentioned family history. Do migraines run in a family? Is there a genetic yes, connection? Yes, there is a good, very good genetic prevalence. Um, about 80% of patients have migraine history in the family, but some of them may be missed because in the old time it was not diagnosed. Okay. So it's a genetically inherited problem. Okay. So once you have the history um, and you're suspecting that this particular patient might have migraines, are there blood tests or imaging tests that are done? or What it is is, you know, like we do a good general history, then we do a complete physical and neurological examination. It takes almost an hour for me. And once it is done, I can decide pretty well whether these are just benign primary headaches without an associated cause or whether there are secondary headache factors, like we call it red flags, like sudden onset of the worst headache, fever with neck stiffness, significant change in the mental status, maybe weakness of the muscles, loss of sensation, loss of vision, cognitive functions, we look for these red flags. Or suppose they have malignancy or HIV, TB, etc. Then there is high suspicion of a secondary headache. At that time, we will decide what diagnostic tests need to be done. To make sure it's not a, yes. a tumor or yes. some other disease or yes. something. Okay. But All most right. of the patients do not need those tests because they are very expensive and cumbersome. These migraines, um, when you do get a migraine, they can last a while, right? Yes. Like days? They can last for hours to days, especially if they are not treated properly. And is there any way to predict um, when the migraine is going to come on? Most of the patients I see, they can sort of tell because there are triggers which can bring it on. Some of them are external, some of them are internal like sudden change in the weather, humidity, hormonal fluctuations, extreme stress, loss of sleep, what you ate or what you did not eat, like missing meals. All these are predictable, but some of them they cannot tell. Is there anything that a person uh, does or doesn't do that makes them worse or better that can maybe prevent the migraine from developing? Yes. Uh, The most important thing I do is educate the patient, to give them a lot of resources. And there are a lot of triggers which can initiate the attack. So if they learn how to avoid them by keeping a headache diary and addressing those triggers, we can control it to a great degree. And also by taking proper diet, doing exercise, hydration, avoiding circumstances like extreme bright light, smell like perfumes, very bad, cigarette smell. All this can cause headaches. So if patients sort of learn to avoid them once they understand their triggers. Once you understand, you know what to do to sort of take care of yourself. Um, What about cures? Is there a way to cure migraines? Unfortunately, there is no cure yet. There's a lot of advancement in the treatment management of the headaches. 
but it's not curable. Uh, it can be controlled if the patient and the doctor works together. And there are so many new advancements, very exciting progress in the management of migraines now. Hopefully they get better when they get older, but that's not a very reassuring thing because right. old age is bad in other ways. But sometimes, I mean, I was going to ask you, do people outgrow migraines sometimes? Some patients do. There is, we call it periods of remission. Sometimes there are years when they don't have the migraines, and then it can come back. In women especially, I see that when they go through menopause or extreme stressful situations. The hormones maybe have hormones something to do with significant factor, yes, ma'am. Do we know what causes migraines in the first place? That's a million-dollar question. Really? But, uh, you know, it's not yet unraveled. But there has been progress, and I can explain the mechanism if you like to hear that. Sure. Yeah, what is believed is that the migraine brain is very excitable and hypersensitive. That's like we said, it's probably inherited. Then there are these multiple triggers acting on the brain. When this happens, certain parts of the brain gets activated and then there is secretion of neurochemicals which are inflammatory. The, the number one is the, what we call a CGRP, which is I call as the VIP or the bad guy or VIP. So when this happens, the blood vessels which surround the brain in the meninges and which attach to the skull bone, they get inflamed and swollen. Then the tissue also around the head gets inflamed. That, then the patient experiences the pain and the associated symptoms we just discussed. So it's an inflammatory process. Inflammation, mm -hmm. and maybe there are other things going on, but we do not know the whole thing. Let me ask you what your advice is for managing non-migraine, not the migraines, but just the headaches that people get after a stressful day, or a hot being out in the heat, that type of thing. What sorts of things work besides aspirin or Tylenol? <laughs> Are there other remedies that you would yes, recommend? Uh, mostly we advise natural measures, like getting a good massage or an ice pack, relaxation. Ice pack okay. yes. Or sometimes heat if the muscles are very tense. Okay. You mentioned CDRP before. So tell me more about what that is. And um, is, do you have a treatment for that? Okay, CGRP is the culprit predominantly involved in the causation of migraine. So there are a lot of advances made recently where drugs have been approved last year, three of them, which works on the CGRP mechanism by reducing the release of that or preventing its attachment to the receptors. I'm sure the patients have seen a lot of commercials on them. It's early stage, but the initial data shows good success and very good safety profile. And these three, there's three different medications that work on the CDRP? Yes, they are very similar, but the problem is it's expensive and the insurance does not approve unless you have tried and failed other common drugs. Well, thank you so much for this information. My guest has been Upstate Neurologist Dr. Rosama Joseph. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, summertime skin concerns and everything you need to know about sunscreen. Sunscreen.
From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Today, we're talking about summertime skin care with Dr. Ramsey Farah. He's an associate professor and the chief of dermatology at Upstate, and he's with me in the HealthLink on Air studio. Thank you for being here, Dr. Farah. Thanks for having me. So let's start with sun exposure. Um, what amount of sun exposure is considered safe? Is there any amount that's safe? Um, well, I, you know, I think one has to be reasonable, uh, of course. I, uh, you can't say that no sun exposure is allowed at all. Uh, so, you know, the, the sun is uh, a, a very much part of our biology, and we do need sun for certain normal processes like vitamin D development and so forth. Um, you know, the bottom line is once you have a tan, that is a response to ultraviolet light radiation and damage. And so the body's defense mechanism is to create a tan. So in a way, by definition, once you have a tan, you're getting a little bit of sun damage. Now, one tan uh, in isolation is not necessarily the thing that's going to cause long-term problems. But if one engages in a behavior where one is frequently tanning, since ultraviolet light radiation is cumulative, over a lifetime one can develop a significant amount of DNA damage in their skin and that can lead to skin cancers. But one has to be reasonable. You know, we, we cannot live indoors, although in Syracuse we probably feel like we it. We spend a lot of time indoors. Sure. So the recommendation for an adequate amount of sun exposure for normal processes like vitamin D exposure is about 10 or 15 minutes, maybe three times a week without sunscreen and not at peak hours should be sufficient for uh, enough vitamin D synthesis. So that also brings us to the question of how much vitamin D is necessary and normal. And that's a difficult question to answer because the value that the medical community gives is always changing and it seems to be ever increasing. Um, I'm not suggesting that that's wrong, but if you get your vitamin D level tested and it's below what is the current standard recommendation, one can always, through diet and supplementation, make up for it to reach the appropriate level. And vitamin D is not an insignificant issue. I mean, uh, uh, lack of vitamin D causes all sorts of problems for us in terms of cancer production and so forth. So it's important. Uh, but again, the message I want to leave is um, it, it's not that we're advocating no sun exposure, zero uh, at all. We're advocating sensible sun exposure, and we're advocating a lifestyle that includes good habits when you are out in the sun, um, sun protective techniques, which we can talk about. If I have on sunscreen, uh, will that prevent me from getting the vitamin D synthesis that I need? Well, uh, to a certain extent, yes, uh, because it's blocking the, the sun's rays. So that's why we recommend uh, two to three times a week, 10 to 15 minutes, not at peak exposure without sunscreen so that you can ensure there's okay. enough sunlight to get you the vitamin D that you need. Okay. Now, you mentioned um, once you have a tan, uh, that the tanning is the body's defense mechanism. Mm -hmm. And I've heard of people that uh, they say they want to get a base tan before they you know, go on a tropical vacation or something. Sure. Is there, is there value to doing that? No, there really isn't. Because even though 
uh, we tan as a defense mechanism, it is not really an adequate defense for the amount of sun exposure that people subsequently get. In fact, some of the studies show that people who get the, quote, baseline protective tan, psychologically they feel so secure about it that A, they don't use any more sunscreen, and B, they go out longer in the sun, and they wind up getting a whopping dose of sun exposure during the vacation. And that kind of pattern actually leads to more sun damage. Um, so it's a false notion, really. Um, and so our tans, while it's the best that nature has given us, are not really adequate enough in terms of preventing sun, uh, skin cancers and so forth. Does a tan prevent a burn later if you have a base tan or, or not? Yes. Yeah, so, uh, again, it's a question of degrees. How much sun exposure are you getting it? Where are you getting the sun? Is it in the Caribbean when it's, where it's very intense? Is it by the beach where there's a lot of reflection? So I, I don't want to say that a tan will be complete protection against a sunburn in any scenario because it won't. But I suppose on an average exposure, once you have a tan, you will need progressively larger amount of sun exposure to actually burn. And so I do want to make a comment that it is better to at least tan than it is, than it is to burn because this very intense uh, acute uh, uh, exposure that would lead to a sunburn is actually even more detrimental in terms of skin cancer production than a tan. So I was going to ask you if tanning is ever safe, but you kind of already sort of answered that. Yeah. So, you know, again, as the dermatologist, I can't advocate really um, getting sun damage as further prevention of disease in the future. It just doesn't make sense. What I can advocate is good uh, sun protective techniques over a lifetime so that over a lifetime the amount of exposure and the amount of tanning you do is is minimized and again I want to reiterate it's not the one tan that's going to cause a problem but it's the pattern of consistent sure. and frequent tanning that will result in issues now of course everyone's got uh, different skin complexions and and so uh, the needs for sun protection seem to be different for different people, right? Yes, ab absolutely. I mean, we're sitting across from the table, uh, you're uh, white, blonde, blue-eyed, I'm more olive-skinned, so of course you're going to be more at risk for sun exposure and sunburns than I would. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm totally uh, uh, absolved of, of practicing the same measures that you would. In fact, if I shine uh, what's called the woods lamp on my face, which is a special blue light uh, that can highlight sun damage underneath the skin. It would be shocking to see how much sun damage even I have as an olive-skinned person. But you bring up a very good point. There are different um, uh, classifications of skin types, one through six, one being the lightest and six being the darkest. And as you progress up or down the scale, uh, increasing numbers, you get higher pigment in individuals and therefore more natural protection. Uh, and so, for example, if I'm a little bit lax about not putting my sunscreen on every two hours, 
I could more easily get away with it than you could. You really have to put your sunscreen on every two hours or else you will burn. Absolutely. This is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Ramsey Farah, the Chief of Dermatology at Upstate, about summertime skin care. So sunscreens. Does everybody need sunscreen no matter your pigment? Uh, so the answer is yes, uh, for for various reasons. So um, it's not just an issue of skin cancer, although that's the major issue, but some individuals actually have allergies to the sun. So de- depending on what's going on, sunscreen can have a, a wide range of applications. But, you know, in terms of talking about skin cancer production, which is, is the main issue, um, yes, everyone needs uh, sunscreen. Now, um, people who are uh, quite dark, again, might not need uh, as high an SPF or as frequent an application. Um, but just about everyone up to um, type 4 or type 5 skin should have sunscreen as one element of their sun protection techniques. So sunscreens are not perfect, uh, but they're the best we have. But there are other things you can do. So for example, you can wear uh hats with a four inch brim because it's very hard to put sunscreen in one's scalp with a full head of hair Um, it's hard to put sunscreens on one's eyelids of course right it's going to get in your eyes and sting so one should wear sunglasses that's uh, blocking of uv not just for your skin but for your retina there's a lot of macular degeneration and all sorts of problems that can occur from a lot of sun exposure to the eyes Uh, There are very fashionable, light, airy clothes, sunscreen clothes that people can uh, buy and wear. Um, You can seek the shade if you're outside. You can still be outside, but in a shady area. You can try and avoid the peak hours of exposure, uh, broadly speaking, from 10 o'clock to 2 o'clock. Um, so those are other things that one can do to protect oneself from the sun. And of course, sunscreen is also a part of that uh, regimen. But so I just want to reiterate that sunscreen is not the only thing you can do. It's one of many things. Let me ask you, as a fair-skinned woman, uh, the makeup foundations that say they have SPF in them, can we trust that they have sun protection? Yes, uh, one can. Uh, So this brings up another important issue. If you are using a sunscreen in a vehicle that you do not like, it just doesn't feel good on your skin, you're just not going to use it. So if in makeup there is sunscreen in a vehicle, obviously, that you like because you apply it, then by all means, use it. The only issue with the makeups is reapplication. So often with a foundation or a makeup, you're just going to put it on once. So therein lies the problem. I think if, if you are just going to work and you have a job indoors, that's adequate. But if you work outside, it's not adequate because, again, the recommendation is that you apply, reapply your sunscreen rather every two to three hours or so. Um, so whether it's in makeup or in another vehicle, it's important to pick a vehicle that you like so that you'll actually consistently use it. What's the highest SPF a person with fair skin should get? Because I see a wide range of what's sure. available. So uh, the recommendation, the current recommendation is 30 or above. Now, there's nothing wrong with using 50 or 60, etc. Um, but the general principle is 
using 30, but properly, meaning every two hours, is better than using 50 and just applying it once. So 30 is the minimum number. Reapplication is the key. Uh, there's certainly nothing wrong with the higher levels. The amount of protection you get with the higher level um, doesn't necessarily, if you graph it, doesn't necessarily increase in a linear fashion. Um, you do get some more protection, especially in the UVA uh, field, uh, but it's not a it's not a linear curve or a direct, pro direct proportion to the number. So that's why we recommend thirty uh, or above, but thirty as a minimum every uh, two to three hours. Uh, and I think one would be fine, even a fair skinned individual. Uh, I've heard a lot of concern lately about sunscreens and the body absorbing the chemicals in the sunscreen. Yes. Are, are you aware of that? Is that? Uh, yes, I am. So I'm glad you brought that up. Um, so one question that people frequently ask is, ask is, well, you know, why didn't you tell us this before? Uh, you know, we just can't win. You tell us to do one thing now, and then later you change your mind. So what I would say to that is we're not changing our mind. But, of course, as our technologies grow, as we're able to measure things more accurately in the bloodstream, we gain more information. And once we gain information, we have to modify our previous recommendations. And so this is what's happening, I think, in this case. So there was a recent study that essentially said if one is applying sunscreens under maximal conditions, meaning uh, frequently enough, a high enough SPF, a certain percentage of body surface area. The, the study showed that the concentration of some of the chemicals in the sunscreen are absorbed into our bloodstream at a higher and measured at a higher concentration than was previously thought. And that concentration is sufficiently high enough for the FDA to call for further studies to find out whether there's actually a biologic effect or any effects with those concentrations in our bloodstream. And the main concern is that these chemicals uh, may affect uh, endocrine and reproductive systems. So the study, I should add, did not um, suggest that because of these findings, people should not wear sunscreen. On the contrary, the, the study still recommended that people wear sunscreen. Some other information related to this is that there are some ingredients that even in this study and the FDA still find uh, completely safe because they're inert. And these two ingredients are zinc oxide and titanium dioxide. So my recommendation with this new information uh, when patients ask me about this is look for sunscreens with these two ingredients. These are physical blockers. Yes, they are absorbed into the bloodstream, but they're absorbed less than the chemical blockers. And even though they're absorbed, they are still considered inert. So they don't have the same potentially disruptive effects on endocrine and reproductive systems. So that's zinc oxide? Zinc oxide and titanium dioxide. And so when you look at the sunscreen, uh, there is a section that usually says, you know, UV blocking uh, ingredients. Those are the two you should look for. And you should have as little as possible of the other chemical blockers uh, until we have more information. But again, the main message is the study doesn't say don't use sunscreen, 
Um, and these are valid questions that the study is bringing up, to be sure. And in the meantime, until these are answered, you're perfectly okay in using those two ingredients, which, to be honest with you, before this uh, study came out, were the two ingredients that I recommended anyway because they happen to be the best blocking agents. They're actually physical particles, and they just block the sun. Now, are those available in lotion and spray? Because the spray sunscreens came out a, a little while ago. R right. So... Um, I actually haven't looked at some of the sprays recently, so I think the answer is yes. I, I've been able to find them in the past. You have to look uh, on the ingredients, of sure. course. So sure. the one, um, but there are micronized forms too, so I, I want to bring that up because sometimes the zinc oxide and, and titanium dioxide, they can look a little bit pasty, but the new formulations with what are called micronized particles go on in a much more cosmetically elegant way. So the one thing I wanted to mention about the sprays is always put those outside and kind of hold your breath when you, when you spray them because you don't want to inhale uh, any of these particles because that might not be good for you either in terms of your lungs. So it's perfectly okay to use them, but use them outside, don't inhale them. And when you're applying a sunscreen, whether it's a cream, a lotion, or a spray, the proper amount is to apply uh, uh, enough so that there's an initial sort of sheen or shininess on the skin that quickly kind of dissipates and gets absorbed into the skin. So that's the proper amount. Okay. Now you mentioned sunscreen protects from skin cancer, but also from sun allergy. Mm -hmm. How would a person know if they're allergic to the sun? Sure, it's a good question. And sometimes it's very difficult to make the diagnosis because one doesn't usually think one is allergic to something as basic as the sun. But there's usually a certain pattern, and that pattern is you're perfectly okay in the winter and even in the fall. And when the spring comes along, uh, you progressively get more sun exposure and you start to break out in this rash. And as you get more and more sun damage, it gets a little bit worse and worse. And then by the time the fall rolls around and you're getting less and less sun, it seems to dissipate. Um, the rashes that you can, the, al the allergic reactions you can get from the sun are very varied. It's really too long a discussion to have here. But basically, if you have symptoms of redness, itchiness, or scaling, that you can correlate with this pattern to sun exposure, then it's probably a reasonable assumption to, to think that maybe this is caused by the sun. The two main entities, and there are many, but the two most common ones are something called polymorphous light eruption. Polymorphous means many forms, so it can look like many different forms. And solar urticaria, or sun-induced hives. Gotcha. Well, before I let you go, I want to ask for your uh, sunburn remedy. But first, is there a way to tell that you're developing a sunburn before you've actually got it? Um, the symptoms of a sunburn, of course, can vary depending on the severity, and it can range all the way up to getting full-blown blisters, which is the worst kind of sunburn sure. you can get. But usually the symptoms of a sunburn are maybe tingling or itching, the skin is beginning to feel a little bit red. The skin is beginning to feel a little bit hot and swollen. Uh, those are signs of an actual sunburn. And to the degree that a sunburn is developing, if you feel any of those things happening, uh, 
then you're probably by definition already have a bit of a sunburn and you should take action to prevent further uh, exposure. But uh, apart from that, no, I don't think there's anything preceding those symptoms that can tell you you're getting a sunburn. I got it. Well, what do you recommend for treatment then? Um, So cool compresses. Like a cold washcloth? Or? Um, right. Uh, you can apply a topical steroid. And you can actually take an aspirin and take an aspirin every four hours or so. Uh, the aspirin will act as an anti-inflammatory mechanism. And if you take it right away, it can help mitigate some of the problems and inflammation and symptoms of a sunburn. So uh, cool compresses, topical steroids, um, keep the skin moisturized, and an aspirin. And call me in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, as far as calling a doctor, though, uh, you mentioned blistering. Is that if, if there's blisters, do you need medical attention? Yes. So I should mention that, you know, sunburns are actually like any other burn on the skin. They can be graded and uh, first, second and third degree burns. And it's rare really to get a third degree burn, but you can get a second degree burn from the sun. And depending on how extensive it is, I mean, that can be a really serious thing. Um, so one must really guard against that. Okay. Well, very good information. I appreciate you being here. My pleasure. Thanks for asking. My guest has been dermatology chief, Dr. Ramsey Farah. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Coming up next, what you can do to recognize, avoid, and treat burnout. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. State Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. You may have heard someone say, or maybe you have felt, that you were suffering from burnout. Real burnout is a serious state of exhaustion, which makes a person vulnerable to depression and suicide, and in the healthcare setting, it can affect patient care as well. Here to talk about burnout is Dr. Holly Vanderhoff, an assistant professor of psychiatry and the co-director of student counseling services at Upstate. Welcome, Dr. Vanderhoff. Thank you for having me. Well, don't most people, um, especially people with high-stress jobs, don't uh, don't they feel stressed or burned out from time to time? Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and and I think we might hear the phrase burnout and think it's this pop psychology term that describes something everybody goes through. Um, and I think most of us have days where we wake up and we feel burned out or we may not want to even go to work that day. But burnout as a thing is very different. It's something, something much more severe. So how do you tell um, if someone is really burned out? Mm-hmm. Well, typically what we would look for, and I, I should pause and say, burnout isn't a diagnosis per se. It's not a disorder, but it's a description, right? A description of a state almost anybody could find themselves in. Um, the research on this over decades, especially since the 1970s, tells us there are three 
major components of burnout. And when we see those in folks, we start to think more about this idea. Um, the first would be the person, as you said earlier, feels emotionally exhausted, right? They feel as if I can't give another ounce of effort to my job. I'm overwhelmed. Um, they may not be feeling especially upset. They may just feel kind of flat and empty. Uh, the second component would be they're experiencing just a sense of detachment or disconnection from their work and from the people that they work with. So they don't feel especially connected at work with others. They don't feel as if they've got a real identity in their workplace. Um, for folks who work with patients, of course, this is really concerning because um, a big thing about burnout in the helping professions is that we actually lose empathy for our patients or for our clients. Um, and so, of course, that has an impact on patient care. Uh, and then the third component would be a sense of, I, I don't even have any meaning in my job anymore. I don't have a sense of accomplishment in my work. I used to feel excited about what I might do. Now I'm not even sure this is in line with my values. And so if you put those three major clusters together, um, that's what starts to look like burnout. When you are describing all of those things, I mean, it sounds awful. Can can someone... I don't recover from all of this. I mean, how do you go about fixing it? Mm, yeah. So, well, I think the first step is is noticing that it's happening because I think a lot of us write it off. Oh, everybody has a hard time. Um, I'm just, you know, I'm weak or I'm not handling it. But I think when we step back, we might be able to see it in someone else before we see it in ourselves. When we step back um, and we notice that this is happening, we can think about what needs to happen next. Um, you know, there's some research on what promotes burnout because certainly, I mean, we all have the experience too. You can work really hard, high, high stress environment, and not get burned out, feel exhilarated, feel good about your work for a long time. What promotes burnout? Well, the, the research would tell us if you're working, yes, in a very high demand, high stress job, but also having a relatively low amount of control over that stress, and then also being in an environment that isn't supportive in some way, either the, the employer isn't particularly supportive, your coworkers, I don't know, they stink, they're not supportive, um, or you're working in an environment where the people are fine, but it's not efficient. You don't have what you need to do your job. And so when we put those things together, we know burnout, bur burnout is more likely. Fixing some of those factors is what I think is the best prevention, the best treatment once it's underway. There are individual strategies, too, that we could talk about. But Well, what do you say to someone who, if someone came to you and said, I, you know, I've, I'm feeling overwhelmed, I don't feel like people, you know, I'm, I'm detached from my work, mm -hmm. and I don't really have, you know, a sense of meaning or purpose, um, what would you say to them? I mean, where do they go from there? Mm. Well, first, as a mental health professional, I'm going to want to assess further, is this depression that also happens to affect work because mm -hmm. there's such an overlap between the experience of burnout and depression. But if I'm talking with someone and I'm hearing that they feel pretty connected to their families, when it's the weekend, their mood is much better. This is really a, a professional state of being. I'm more likely to think about burnout. And so we'll go in that direction. And so some things we would talk about would include, um, Boy, it's, you know, it's the most boring thing, right? But the most basic stress management. Are you managing your stress well? If your job's creating a lot of stress, we are not, you know, magical, infinite reservoirs of capacity. You know, you need to be uh, managing your stress and, and refilling your capacity. So are you doing things like sleeping well? Uh, we can give a lot of lip service to eating well, but are you actually doing it? Are you exercising regularly? 
Um, a big one is, are you taking meaningful time off away from the work? So even if you love it on some level, are you stepping back from it? A lot of folks will say, well, yeah, you know, I, I, I come home and I watch TV for hours or I take breaks at work. But if you're taking breaks and just staring at a screen or you're not doing something really rejuvenating, it's not very meaningful as time off versus I plan that every Friday afternoon I go for a nice long walk or I take an extra hour off or I plan vacations. So we'd be talking about things they could do to, to manage that workload differently. Because just watching TV is not really, you're not like yeah. engaged in another thing. Mm -hmm. You're just sort of... <laughs> Zoning out, yeah. Wow. So can have you seen, can people turn it around? Can they come back from a burnout situation? Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, that does usually involve changing something about their work lives. Because by the time someone, say, gets to my door with this as an issue, uh, it's kind of entrenched. You know, people aren't coming in if they've had a day or two of not wanting to go to work. It's usually months or years of feeling this way. So it may mean something like looking for different work, or it may mean trying to remember what first felt valuable about this job and why you took it and finding ways to reconnect with that within the workplace. It might mean going to your employer with ideas about what could be different. Most people who are working in a system could tell you a lot about how that system could be improved. Employers aren't always good at listening to that. Um, so trying to make changes and then doing, again, a lot of the self-care things on the outside it does help people and they, they can move out of this. Do you see burnout in students? Not necessarily from work, but from their course load or their yes. student. Absolutely. And especially those students who are going on into, say, medicine or law careers, um, people who are preparing for careers where there's very high demand and the stakes are very high. Others' well-being is dependent on you doing your job very well. So, for instance, in medical students, we see that burnout is is extraordinarily high, so is depression. Uh, the rates of suicide and depression for medical students are much higher than they are for folks who are not medical students, right? Same age, mm -hmm. but not in medical school. Um, so I do see it, I work quite a bit with students uh, preparing for nursing, um, work in the sciences, medical school, of course, health professions, and, and you do see that in students. And it continues, especially for medical students, of course, physicians, depending on the research you look at, the research will say physicians are burning out at about a rate of 50%, right? So that, of course, has serious impacts on, on patient care. And is it true um, after, after you're a medical student, you go into a residency mm -hmm. for part of your training, and is it true that suicide is the number one cause of death among male residents and the number two cause of death among female residents? Yeah, I was stunned when I read that figure. Wow. It's um, a gathering from the ACGME study of all the causes of resident deaths, and I believe that study went from 2000 to 2014. So for a 15-year period, over a 15-year period, suicide was the number one cause of death for male residents. That's ahead of accidents. These are young uh, men who are should be statistically pretty healthy and are, but um, killing themselves at, at that rate. Yeah. And number two for women behind, I believe, carcinomas. And ACGME, we should say that's the Graduate Medical Education mm -hmm. Organization. So when you talk about burnout in the medical professions, um, do you see it more in physicians or nurses? Hmm. That you see it more in one versus the other. I, I, they, it's an issue with both. I think more recently, uh, physician burnout is getting more attention, but I wouldn't say that it's higher in physicians. You know, they have very unique roles in patient care, and I, I would wager as an outsider that they're they're equally stressful in their own ways. What about the um, specialties? Are there certain medical specialties that see more um, 
burnout? Mm -hmm, certainly. So people who are in specialties that require have a high um, high involvement with critically ill patients. And again, remember what we said earlier, not only just a high demand, but also lack of control over that. So if I'm working in the ER, I'm an ER doc or critical care nurse, I can't control who's coming in um, or at the rate at which that happens. I have to respond, I have to do really well. Um, so a specialty like emergency medicine would be much higher than say dermatology, not that you can't burn out in these right. other areas as well. Um, but but yes. it's a little more scheduled and mm -hmm. you can plan right. And, and right. things. Wow. Well, um, let's talk a little bit about how burnout can potentially affect patient care. Sure. Because that, um, you mentioned uh, decreased empathy. Mm -hmm. And in, if you're in a caring profession, that's huge. Right. Um, are there other things that you look for? Mm -hmm. So we know that uh, and again, people might say, well, burnout, everybody feels bad about their jobs. Well, this has a serious impact, right? So if, if for instance, 50% of physicians are burned out at any given time, that's a staggering number of people who are treating vulnerable patients. Um, so the patient's experience might be that they don't feel especially heard or they don't feel responded to. That's problematic. Um, also problematic, as research tells us, physicians or medical students and residents who are burned out are much more likely to make medical errors. They're more likely to falsify clinical data, perhaps even saying, well, I performed, well, okay, that, I don't remember whether I did that or not. We'll say that's normal in the chart. Um, the students who are burned out are more likely to cheat on exams. Uh, both physicians and students are more likely to say, at least in research, I might engage in more unethical activities um, when they're burned out. So that's, that's a huge impact, right? And so we also know across settings, not just in medicine, that burnout means more employee absenteeism uh, and more turnover in the workforce. And those are, those are big problems for employers. So we've talked about some of the things individuals can do. Are there things that employers um, or an institution can do to sort of head off um, burnout for their employees? Absolutely. And, and again, I think prevention is the goal. But if we can't reach that, employers could take, first, we could acknowledge that this is an issue, right? And it's not just an issue for people who can't handle it. Um, it's an issue for even extremely bright, resilient, well-prepared people. It's an issue. So if employers acknowledge that and launch programming to help um, help their employees recognize when they might be burning out, provide them avenues for getting help early on, um, provide you know, on-site stress management opportunities, have a gym in the workplace, have, um, have some regular time off available. Um, don't just vote. So I know they at one point shrank residence hours, right, in an effort mm -hmm. to reduce burnout. But of course, if you don't reduce the workload, then now we're just asking them to do more work in shorter time. You know, so meaningful uh, change is what's important. I think the other major issue, and this is especially a problem in the medical field, is the stigma around any kind of mental health issue. And so although burnout is not a mental health issue per se, uh, it, it, it can feel really difficult to talk about it. I might feel very weak or, or as if I should be ashamed of myself if I talk with my colleagues or my employer about being burned out. So if employers could work against the stigma of getting help, that too would be really helpful. Yeah. If we could accept that this is a risk, right, an inherent risk of working in certain fields, and we all need to work on knowing this when we see it and addressing it when it happens versus having it go underground. Wow, how do we get rid of that stigma? Because, I mean, that's a good point. Yeah. And that, I mean, that causes people not to seek the help mm -hmm. or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, well, and that's, of course, a larger cultural issue. And even within the culture of, I keep picking on medicine, right? But even in the culture of medicine, um, if I'm a doctor, I am never supposed to be a patient. 
right? I'm never, I'm the helper. I'm never supposed to need the help. And I think we laugh at that. We say, well, that's irrational. We know it's not true, but we live our lives that way. And I think we put that pressure on ourselves. So I think there needs to be a, a culture shift that says um, suffering in some way is not pathology and it isn't a sign of weakness. We can get some of that culture change going by um, you know, citing that as a value, that the, the well-being of our employees is a real value and taking meaningful steps to, to make that clear and to act on it. Um, the culture and the stigma can change a bit just by people being more willing to talk about what's going on for them. So if I'm an employer and I'm willing to stand up and say, um, I've struggled with this issue myself and this is how I over it, and it's actually my expectation that you'll take good care of yourself to work here. So not just lip service to, we want you all to be healthy, uh, self-care is really important, but really saying it's a professional expectation that you take good care of yourself and then making meaningful ways for folks to do that. I think that would be helpful with the stigma, but oh. we have a long way to go on that. Very interesting. This is a, a great topic. I appreciate you being here to talk about it. Uh, my guest has been Dr. Holly Vanderhoff, Assistant Professor of Psychiatry uh, and the Co-Director of Student Counseling Services at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, Health Link on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's Literary and Visual Arts Journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Our individual tragedies can take place against a backdrop of larger community ones. Nurse, poet, and artist Shauna L. Swetek shows us how one healer uses everything at her disposal to try and help her patient change course. Here is her poem, In Flames. Fresh images of the inferno raging home to home in our drought-desiccated state. Fifteen minutes to get out, one man cries, barely time to grab the wife, the dog, the computer. Wildlife, forests, schools, family treasures, the history of entire towns and 50,000 acres, all gone. Feeling sick, helpless, I turn away from the television to my patient, jaundiced, and fresh out of a coma with his grizzled liver and bloated belly. What's your plan to stay sober, I ask. Don't have one, he says. I throw him every lifesaver I know, 12-step, inpatient, outpatient programs, share stories from my life, husband 20 years clean, siblings who didn't make it. My best analogy? How not having a plan is like standing on the beach in California Sure, you can make the swim to Hawaii. You jump in, kick and kick, but soon the struggling starts, and too late, you realize what you've forgotten. Nourishment, support crew, some kind of map. His dark eyes flick over me, quickly return to the screen, as orange plumes pummel the night sky, red ash burnishing the wind. You need tools, I say. This is life and death. You can't keep doing what hasn't worked, hoping for a miracle. Let me get the social worker. We'll help with what you need. But he just watches the TV, watching and watching as everything burns down. No, I don't want it, he finally mumbles.
This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, a rare tumor of adrenal gland tissue known as pheochromocytoma. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or do a podcast search for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening. Thank you.